What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, look at your suit. You've been taking bullets, charging it up with kinetic energy. Put around the truck. everyone, I'm Aisha Harris, and this is Represent. Happy Black Panther Week! Apparently that's a thing, according to my social media feeds, and what a beautiful thing it is. On this week's episode, we're celebrating the release of the Blackest Cultural Event of the Year. Though, don't worry, we know this is dropping on the day of the movie's release, and we won't be spoiling anything here. Just look out for an extra crossover episode we're doing with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Monday. In the meantime, today we've got a really great interview with none other than Wesley Snipes, who tried for years to bring Black Panther to the big screen, but when that didn't pan out, instead made the cult favorite Blade, a precursor to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But up first, the Brooklyn Academy of Music is in the final stretch of a really fascinating film series pegged to Black Panther called Fight the Power, Black Superheroes on Film. Senior programmer Ash Clark recently joined me to talk about the wide variety of films he chose to highlight, including Night of the Living Dead and Catwoman. Check it out. Welcome to the show, Ash. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to have you on because you've actually programmed this really amazing series, kind of I I'm assuming pegged both to Black History Month but also to the release of Black Panther, which is opening uh by the time this recording is released. Um, today. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about this program, mm-hmm. which is called Fight the Power, Black Superheroes on Film. And you've got a very wide range of films going on here. So first, before we even get into some of the films that you programmed, how when you were deciding on this series and figuring out what you wanted to put in, how did you define superhero? Well, I mean, the first thing, yeah, to, to go back to what you said was the, you know, the Black Panther is the, the overriding um, inspiration for the series. And I should say that we're screening it at the Bam Harvey Theatre on the huge screen oh, nice. um, from yesterday. Um, and it's, you know, it's obviously a high watermark in, in the, the representation of black characters in fantasy entertainment. It's a huge deal, as you can see from from the excitement that's been building over the last year since the whole project was was announced and kicked into gear. Um, but I, I kind of kept hearing things around like it's the first black superhero movie, which is, you know, strictly not, not true. I mean, all you have to do is look at Blade or Catwoman, if you, if you prefer, yeah. or, or, you know, due respect to Shaquille O'Neal in, in Steel. Oh, wait, I don't remember that movie, Steel. Few, few remember that I movie. I remember Kazam, but not yeah. Steel. <laughs> Kazam, which was the subject of internet controversy, wasn't it? it was yes, the whole, yes. 
Because he was supposed Sinbad to be Sinbad thing. Yeah, he's supposed to be a genie or something. Yeah, there was a whole pretend movie thing though. That, that there was a collective delusion. Oh that, right. But anyway, we're getting way off track here. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I thought it would be really interesting to expand the definition of what what a black superhero is, mm. um, because there's so many aspects of Black Panther. There's the creation of this, this mythical um, African landscape. There's there's ties obviously to Black revolutionary politics. And I thought, why not kind of bring together five six decades of cinema, uh, countercultural cinema, kind of way out their genre cinema and make that act as a kind of pathway to, to where we got to today mm-hmm. so without wishing to sound too dry i hope that the series has been uh, educational in some ways and, and has filled some some blind spots in people's film histories and i also hope it's been downright fun um mm-hmm. you know the earliest films in there night of the living dead with the great Dwayne jones from 1968 this is one of the the key early horror films and it was such a powerful thing in 1968 to have a black actor playing that role, even if the director, George Romero, said that uh, he was doing the colorblind casting thing. Yeah, I've never believed that. Whether or not that's (laughs) true, the impact of seeing him up there is really spectacular. And then we moved on to the black exploitation boom, um, the the independent cinema movement, uh, Melvin Van Peebles with Sweet Sweetback, this kind of incredible independent filmmaker. Mm. And we kind of moved through a a range of, of genres and styles, and I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. I want to actually talk a little bit about Night of the Living Dead uh, because it's, uh, spoiler alert, although this movie is like almost 50 years old now, so if you (laughs) haven't seen it, you should. But um, he dies at the end. And I think that we don't often think of our superheroes of of dying at the end. Like the whole point is that they're they're supposed to uh, overcome all of these, these challenges. But he is felled by... Co- like coincidentally enough or not coincidentally enough by the police uh, at the very end of the movie. Um, what do you make of, of that? Because that, it stands out, I think, in comparison to a lot of the movies, other movies in the series where, you know, usually there's a triumph or at least they live by the end. Mm-hmm. And, and with this movie, that doesn't happen. There's a bleakness to that film that can't help but resonate um, today. And I suppose at any point in the in the past 50 years, as you say, um, and it speaks to the broadness of what I was trying to include in this in this program. Not everybody in the, not every character in this program has mythical powers. They can't all, you know, summon electricity through their hands or, or scale buildings. But for some, for me, the idea of a superhero can be what you represent um, at a time, at a moment. And to go back to Dwayne Jones, I think he represented something extraordinary in the landscape of American cinema um, at the time when race in the movies was being done in a you know the, the Sidney Poitier year of 67 with to serve with love guess mm. who's coming to dinner in the heat of the night he had his big banner year then he was the most visible um uh black star the first real kind of black hollywood superstar of the 60s and the way that those films dealt with race was in a in an interesting but fairly straightforward kind of way and i think what's interesting about night of the living dead the racial subtext it's quite oblique you know it's not it doesn't scream at you in the text but it gives you plenty to think about and and that idea of that that you know look tapping into the social context of these films is something that that runs throughout the whole program yeah i mean that was another thing that i i noticed is that really with a few exceptions here and there, like Catwoman, uh, <laughs> which well, we can get to t- Catwoman, but I will get to Catwoman. <laughs> but there are a few exceptions, like almost all these superheroes uh, are are fighting or resisting in some way racism or um, uh, economic strife and 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 political strife and cultural strife, and and I it feels like something that's very unique to the black experience. Whereas you know, I mean, with other superheroes. There, I mean, yes, there's Captain America who's like supposed to represent America, and then we could always go into like what 
does that America look like? But it's it seems like did you did you have any trouble finding movies or were you looking for movies like Catwoman that were also just not necessarily about like that political thing? Or do you feel like that's just very inherent to what a black superhero is? I think it's in, it's inherent in the title of the series, Fight the Power. There was a very much yeah. anti-establishment um, thread running through the series. And I think it sits within a wider context of black representation in American cinema. And um, from the beginning, from the, the early days, I'm sure you spoke on this podcast about Birth of a Nation yes. and how, you know, American cinema has been a battleground for uh, for ideologies, competing ideology. And from the early independent filmmakers like Oscar Michaud, who were kind of fighting with limited resources against the dominant um, representation, that has been a key a key contest. Um, and and I think that runs again through all of these these so called superheroes, many of whom are regular people, um, perhaps it, with some kind of mythical, fantastical qualities about them. I'm thinking about some of the black exploitation characters. Yeah, yeah, like, like Shaft. Yes, you know, it would be wrong to call him a regular guy, but he's not a quote unquote superhero. But, um, you know, beyond the text, the iconography and the impact he made was in a way superheroic. Yeah. I, one of the films that comes up in the series that I'd never even, I, somehow I'd never even heard of, but I watched it, um, Abar, the first <laughs> black Superman, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which uh, is one of the earlier films in the series. It came out in 1977. And the basic premise of this film is there is a, a family, a black family that moves into a white neighborhood in, in California. And the, the white Ra- the most outright racist, so outright, like cartoonishly <laughs> yeah. outright, like. Well, you just... say that, but well, know, yes, it's it, pretty it, pretty realistic to me. Realistic, yes. <laughs> uh, I think maybe it's just the dialogue is really terrible. Yeah. It's a very poorly acted film, and and the dialogue is terrible. But <laughs> it has a very like it, it. There's so much that's still relevant today, and and the black family moves in, and then there's um, Abar, who's like the leader of this. They're not the Black Panthers, but they're kind of like the Black Panthers in their their city, and they help clean up and and try to help uh, the ghetto. And so Abar is trying to get the father of the family, um, who is also a doctor, to move his family back to the ghetto and contribute to the giving back to that community. So there's a lot of push and pull, and eventually uh, the doctor develops this thing, serum or something to give to Abar to turn him into an actual Superman. It's such a long delay. I mean, they really make you wait for that. Yeah, they? it's like it's <laughs> like an hour, an hour and 20 minutes maybe into the movie and it's only like hour 40 minutes. <laughs> so, but it, but that movie was just so fascinating to see. And I'm, I'm, it's nice to like, I'm glad that you're you're exposing people to these movies because I'd never heard of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of, of this program and my job at large as pro- programming a, essentially a repertory cinema, organizing, you know, uh, repertory series and, and festivals and special events. I always like to ask people in the audience to put their hands up to tell me if they've seen a film before. And, you know, it's it's incredible, really, to see how many of these films people are being exposed to for the first time. Um, Abar is a real obscurity. I mean, even in, in quote-unquote black exploitation circles, this is kind of like a, a rarely seen film. Yeah. So I thought it'd be good to put it with Sweet Sweet Bag, which is obviously c- canonical in, mm. in that genre. But there's there's films in here like um, The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Also a great movie. Which is, yeah. which is f- for those who are unfamiliar, it's about a, a black CIA operative, just a, a guy with a desk job who covertly plans uh, an overthrow of the establishment with a, uh, a black radical organization. And this is a film that was deemed so incendiary that the FBI suppressed prints of it f- for decades, and it was almost impossible to see. And 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 that speaks to to the <laughs> the power of of culture to shape 
people's opinions. People didn't want this film seen because they knew how radical and how powerful it could be. Yeah. And it's the flip side of a film like um, like Abba, which is kind of goofy and, and really kind of badly acted. And really in that kind of, it's so bad that you're, you're laughing kind yeah. of way. Yeah. Um, Spooky's Out by the Door, conversely, is directed by Ivan Dixon, um, who was uh, you know, a prolific TV star and also the star of a wonderful film, from 1964 called Nothing But A Man, mm-hmm. which was Malcolm X's favourite film. Yeah. Um, so there's all these connections popping off. Um, so yeah, I, I, again, to go back to what you were saying before, there is always going to be a political thrust in these films by nature of their very presence um, in a predominantly white conservative filmmaking landscape. Yeah. I want to move now to Catwoman <laughs> because this is <laughs> this is actually a political presence of a different sort yes it's she's played by Halle Berry and that was a big deal at a time at the time especially considering with the exception of Eartha Kitt every Catwoman I believe in like major Batman movies and TV shows was played by a white woman Mm -hmm. and to have Halle Berry play that just off of Monsters Ball (laughs) which is just uh, it's a whole other thing but the the prefer Monsters Inc to be honest I I agree Um, but with with that movie, it was interesting to me. So I I finally watched this in preparation for us to talk because I've just avoided it for it's been fourteen years now since it came out. <laughs> so I finally sat down to watch it, and I was amazed by the fact that the crux of it is like first of all, Batman. I don't even think is actually mentioned or, or alluded. It might he might be alluded to once, but this is very like not part of the canon. It's not considered part of the canon. The story is very out there. Halle Berry plays a woman who works as a um, she works at a like beauty line I'm not sure exactly what she does I think she does like ads or copy for for the beauty product line and it's run by Sharon Stone and her (laughs) husband (laughs) and the the um the beauty line is going to cause some like this new thing they're putting out this new product they're putting out might you know make people's faces like burn or something and Halle Berry finds out she's pushed into like this this sewer and then she dies but then these ancient Egyptian cats uh revive her now what who I hasn't been through that experience I know I mean I just happened to me last week <laughs> um but so what I was fascinated by was just like how it's so much about female empowerment but like female empowerment like what that meant in 2004 is very different from what it means now Oh yeah, I mean the, the conversations <laughs> changed immeasurably, but yeah. there is there was something quite, uh, I suppose, vituperative about the way that the film was dismissed, and something perhaps unpleasant about it. I'm not I'm not going to stand here or sit here, as the case may be, and claim that this is a, a lost masterpiece. It isn't. <laughs> it's not a particularly good film. Yeah. It is kind of a weird movie. You know, I think sometimes these these famous turkeys get dismissed completely without anyone doing the work of analyzing why they're bad or why they're actually quite interesting. It's certainly not a boring film. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, that was a big, a big issue for me with this, this program because it was looking, it's looking very male, you know, it's, it's a very male heavy program. Um, and there are not a great deal of options for me to highlight um, screenings, uh, f- films that have been made with a with a woman in the lead, and I believe you know I- I'm always wary about saying this was the first this that or the other, because there's so much research to be done and things to be found. I think I'm on safe ground in saying that Catwoman was the first time that a black woman had headlined um, uh, a superhero picture, mm. and and there's a kind of tragedy inherent in the fact that it died so spectacularly. And by um, by superhero pi- picture, do you mean at like comic book superhero? A comic you, book, yes. Because you do yeah, include yeah. in the series, you have um, Fox, Foxy Brown Foxy and Cleopatra Brown. Jones. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So, yeah, w- with the flex, very flexible uh, definition of superheroes right. that I, I've, I've applied to this program, yes. But as a as a more kind of uh, comic book 
character. Right, right. Or more traditional superhero, someone with with, uh, superhuman powers. So what do you think is interesting about this failure? Because I agree it is a very fascinating failure. (laughs) Um, Well, you just read read the plot out. I mean, that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess what I find most interesting is just like the, the fact that she gains her self-confidence because she's her her character is supposed to be like this meek um like no one pays attention to her and then she gets you know reincarnated by <laughs> this egyptian cat and 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 <laughs> and and suddenly is like super sexy and forceful and saying like no this is the way i'm gonna do it no one tells me what to do um but uh, the binary i guess is like the the weird thing like i feel like if it was made today hopefully by the right you know director and writer combination they would be a little more, more nuanced something more aligned with like and i don't think wonder woman by any means was perfect but i feel like mm-hmm. it would have been uh, a much different movie had it been made today yeah i think films in many ways reflect the the culture of the di- the discourse that, yeah. that they're part of and i think today's Catwoman would definitely be a bit more woke if they tried to do it again. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I'm not sure the Sharon Stone character would be quite so um, demonic. <laughs> they might try yeah. to sh- shade her a bit, but I find that fun, you know, that yeah. that really over-the-top. I'm a bit of a sucker for over-the-top stuff that it's doesn't very, quite work. Yeah, it's very campy in, like, yeah. in, in, a, in a good way. I mean, it's it, it was painful, but it was also yeah. just very fun. But I should reiterate, I'm not sitting here saying that it's a lost <laughs> classic, that you yeah. must... You must revisit. Um, yeah. I'm not going to stake my reputation on that. Okay. So as of the time this episode is being released, we're coming on the end of the series. What are some of the movies uh, that you have left and that you're most excited for folks to come see? Well, I'm glad you asked because there's a film called Catwoman. It <laughs> 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 screens um, on Saturday, February the 17th at 9.30 p.m. So you have time to get some drinks in beforehand. Yes. Um, at 4.30 on Saturday, uh, February the 17th is one of my very favorite films in the series called Yilen, which is from 1987 um, by a Malian filmmaker called Suleiman Sise, which won uh, a a prize at Cannes. And it's an incredible uh, mythical father-son story, and it's like nothing I've ever seen. So I really recommend you come see that on the big screen. Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, starring the one and only Forrest Whitaker, shot in Jersey City. (laughs) Um, And uh, on the final day of the program, we have uh, two two more of my favorite films, uh, Strange Days, um, which is Catherine Bigelow kind of operating at her full capacity yeah. with a perhaps slightly more successful political commentary than, than the recent Detroit. Oh, it was so... I, I had not realized how having watched... like I don't think I'd seen Strange Days in, in its entirety until now. And so having seen Detroit a few months ago now and then watching this, it was like, whoa, how how is this possible? What happened? Well, <laughs> well also, it's James, James Cameron co-wrote the script. So yeah. I also found that interesting because like James Cameron... I mean, he's a great filmmaker, but I think when it comes to like actual script writing, he can, you know, vary. Yeah. But, but this, this one kind of works. And it, it does work. It's in large part due to Angela Bassett, who, yes. who is the the highlighted performer here, um, yes. who who, get, who brings what could have been a mere sidekick role, some real depth and power. Uh, and then the final film in the program, uh, me repping South London, I couldn't leave out my, my ends. Um, John Boyega in Attack the Block, love Attack which, the Block, which um, is another film which. 
you know, given the way that British right-wing tabloids have demonized this figure of the black youth um, since <laughs> since the time where my grandparents came over, you know, this t- to London from Jamaica, like th- th- these tropes have really calcified in the British media. And I thought that uh, Attack the Block was a really interesting way of subverting that. And obviously what it did was introduce John Boyega to the world. And we all thought, wow, who's this guy? And then we heard nothing from him again. Until, Until we saw him in the Star Wars trailer. Yeah. And so it's kind of an origin story of a, of a Hollywood superhero in a way. And I'm really proud of John and uh, I love the film. So come and see them all, please. Awesome. Including Catwoman. <laughs> and, and really quick, what are you most looking forward to about Black Panther? Whether it's the movie itself or just the movement, I think that it might be. It seems like it's starting something, you know, like it's, it's a big, it's a big freaking deal. It seems like it's really, really is starting something special. Um, but to give you a, a more kind of film nerdy answer, I'm actually looking forward really to seeing how Ryan Coogler um, handles the challenge of, of directing a, a big studio comic book property and to the extent to which he'll bring some of his own myriad qualities to the role. I mean, I think he proved without a doubt in Fruitvale Station and uh, Creed in particular that the guy really knows how to make a film. I think he's a, an exceptional filmmaker um, just in terms of composition and storytelling. So I'm very interested to see how he applies that to such a huge property uh, and, and generally just seeing all of these wonderful actors on screen together at the same time. And I'm just hoping for surprises. Yeah, I it, it is interesting. I keep forgetting that this is his first really big film. And I really hope he turns out to be more of a Ryan Johnson, Ryan Johnson, who went from directing sort of smaller indies uh, to now The Last Jedi and less of uh, I can't remember who did. Jurassic World. Was it Colin? Colin Trevorrow, who directed Jurassic World. Poor old Colin. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Didn't quite work out. Yeah, yeah, but he, you yeah. never know, he might come back. Who knows? But um, yeah, I'm, I'm rooting, rooting for Ryan, I'm rooting for everyone. Like Issa says, I'm rooting for everybody black, so. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Ash. It's been great. And we'll make sure to post the links for everything we talked about and also for the BAM uh, if you are in Brooklyn to check out the series. And thank you so much. Thank you. You want to catch the hunter? You start with the prey. We're talking all the night places where vampires congregate. Blood banks, safe houses. Bigger the better. So, what's first? So, before there was the major cinematic event that is Black Panther, starring a predominantly black cast, and before the Marvel Cinematic Universe was even a thing, with tentpole franchises and sequels and crossover storylines, there was Blade, the 1998 hit film based on the comic book hero of the same name. Here to chat about that influential film, its sequels, and his own plan to develop Black Panther for the big screen more than 20 years ago is Wesley Snipes. Welcome to the show, Wesley. Bright light, good rising, good rising. <laughs> Panther style. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so I, I want you to, first off, let's start talking about Blade because I think... Because back then in the late 
90s, we didn't really have much in the way of a template at the time of like what the superhero universe could look like on screen. It was like very new territory. We had obviously the Superman movies in the 70s and the 80s, and we also had the Batman movies, but this was very different. And this was also a Marvel comic as opposed to DC. And can you just take us back a bit and talk a little bit about like how you got involved with Blade and, and how difficult or not it was for you to even get that first film made? Well, it came to me through my uh, agent at the time. I think I was with the CAA. And um, it was post the conversations we were having about the Black Panther. So the Black Panther conversations preceded Blade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really wasn't familiar with the Blade character at the time. But I thought, especially after having you know, the, the putting the effort towards the Black Panther and getting that off the ground, and it didn't come to fruition. Um, I thought it'd be a cool thing to go ahead and, and, and play the Black Vampire. At that time, they were only reference for reference in our community, you know, in the African-American community. One, well, Eddie did a Black Vampire, which was interesting. Oh, yes. But, but there was also William Marshall who did Blackula back in the 70s. And William Marshall was a classically trained uh, Shakespearean actor, which is the background that I come from, the pedigree that I have as well. So I thought it was okay that if William Marshall could do Blackula, then it's okay for Wesley Snipes to do Blade. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that it was you know, considered a a, uh, comic book adaptation. I approached it as just this cool character that we would, we had no uh, point of reference for. And I would get a chance to do some acting, some martial arts, and wear a cool leather coat like Shaft. (laughs) So it was all good for me, (laughs) you know. And uh, most of the people around me at the time, they really didn't agree. They thought it was somewhat beneath my skill my skill sets to be playing this uh, comic book character. Hmm. And they were using things like, well, there's never been a hit. Well, nobody's ever heard of it. Uh, why would you want to do that? And you have these other roles here and we're going for, you know, awards and all of that kind of stuff. And you're a thespian. I was like, yeah, but. For me and my my partners, it would be so cool for us to see this in the movie because we've never seen a black vampire that can fight martial arts. Mm-hmm. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> right, because Eddie Murphy was, uh, that movie, I forget what it was called. Vampire Brooklyn. Oh, vampire, yes, yes, A Vampire in Brooklyn. Vampire Brooklyn but he, right. that was more like a sexy, like it was more like a romance, if I recall correctly. It wasn't him like fighting crime and, and that kind of thing, right? No, yeah. no, it wasn't. Right, right. And do you, like one of the things I, I've found interesting about the character, uh, at least I don't remember in the first film if, if it's really talked about, but in the second film there is a moment um, where your character faces a bit of a, it's taunting, a ra- racial taunting actually. What was that? Can you blush? <laughs> where Reinhardt, who's the leader of the Blood Pack, and he's played by Ron Perlman in, the, in Blade Two, he, he makes a, a, a comment about, like, can you blush? 
and and you respond to that and by you know sticking smacking them up. Yes, yeah, smacking them up. But it it was interesting to me to see that because I in the in the first film I don't think it really touches at all on your race. Can you talk a little bit about like um kind of incorporating that more into Blade Two and like did you see any par- parallels between Blade's narrative and sort of a black person's what a black person might experience on a day to day basis or what you've experienced personally as a black person. Uh, to be really honest, I would love to give you like some great quotes to show how we were thinking about that and we were cognizant of its social impact um, and social commentary, racial dynamic commentary, but that wasn't it at all. Mm. It was Guillermo de Toro's idea to add that into the movie. Mm. And it was it just gave you know some other dimension to the dynamic of these um um mercenaries <laughs> if you could call them that right mm-hmm. uh, being plunged into a, a a predicament that they were all resistant to, and one of the personalities was this guy who was kind of you know a uh, you could say a supremacist. I don't even know if he's a white supremacist because he was a vampire, but it really wasn't, that wasn't really the, the intent. And it was ancillary to, you know, what we were trying to accomplish in terms of the, in terms of entertainment. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things is that, especially for that time, and even now today, it's hard to make uh, a movie with a, with a black character without someone feeling the need for there to be that commentary. But the fact that those films didn't focus on that, I think, in itself is sort of revolutionary uh, in that way. And I'm sure it might have been a little bit of the appeal for you as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, to your point, that is a challenge within the industry and the mindset of the the writers and the producers. Um, Often they perceive... Once you put African-American or people of color in the film, then you have to address the social dynamic that may exist in the real world. I don't always agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a time and place for everything. You know, I mean, you can go, you can have a Thanksgiving dinner, but you don't have to put everything on the on the table. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been, you know, other... As as I mentioned, there have been other uh, comic book movies before Blade, but Blade was really, I think, generally now it's considered the film that sort of kicked off all of these movies we have now um, and this Marvel mm. c- Cinematic Universe. Mm. What are your thoughts on the movies that have come after Blade? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of the genre, to be really honest about it. I see almost every one of the films. I look at them not only for pure entertainment, but for the execution of the film and the difficulties and the challenges these artists overcome, be they in front of the camera or behind the camera, to make us believe this world and engage us. I think the films that have stronger actors are better films and allow you to really uh, accept the world that's being presented and, 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 and have fun. With it. It, it it is interesting to me though that even though we had Blade, the first few movies that came after 
um, those films. I mean, X-Men, yes, it had Halle Berry and, and, you know, we had other movies. But it seems like the incorporation of people of color into those worlds has taken longer, even though Blade came before it. And um, I'm curious if you had any thoughts about, like, as the years were going on, and obviously, like, it, it seems like Blade for a, a, a short period was sort of forgotten and not, inclu- and not included in the conversation. Um, I mean, what were you thinking during those years as you were watching this sort of genre blow up and, and you, uh, Blade was sort of left behind, I think, in a way? And now it gets the respect. Oh, man, if I would have known what I know now, then, I mean, it's the classic statement. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we had no idea Blade would be a success. And really it was a, a, a labor of love that we thought would be only, you know, watched by very few people. But I had a good body of work, but I wasn't concerned with it having a damaging effect on the career. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 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 the fact that it blew up the way it did and it had the appeal, I mean, you know, there were even statements early on. <laughs> I remember where one of the executives of the uh, of the, the, the um, studio at the time, in a screening, commented after the they did the focus group and they got back the numbers and they saw how the numbers were so high. And there was so much appeal for the character and the world. He he commented, "I don't understand why people like this." There were others who thought that black people of black talent in film doesn't sell internationally, doesn't sell foreign, doesn't sell in Japan. Blade comes out and it blows up in Japan, despite the fact that the lead is a black guy, you know, Mm -hmm. and these were testaments to the lack of cultural awareness, uh, intelligence about the world, itself, the global landscape, Mm -hmm. and the appeal that African-American culture has around the world. African-American cool is loved by everybody. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it's even copied and co-opted by others. Case in point, right now in the world, the number one country that produces, or the number one culture producing the top break dancers and hip-hop performers from the dance world are the South Koreans. Mm-hmm. They won the Battle of the B-Boys and Battle of the Break four or five years running. And if you go to South Korea and you get into the community, of the, the hip-hop community, I'm telling you, you would not know you were in the South Bronx in 1978. <laughs> 1979, the hair, the, the, the dress, and they live it. They live the language, they live the culture, they're immersed in it, and they can dance their asses off. And of course, they add the whole martial arts, Taekwondo thing into it, so that takes it to a whole another level. Right, right. But what amazing, you know, for me to be like around during the early 70s and the, 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 the birth of hip hop, and then to see the culture being preserved in South Korea. And in France and in Algeria, and these, and these people are good. Mm-hmm. So to my point, Af- the, 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 the beauty of African-American culture and African-American experience, experience has been exported around the world and embraced around the world. 
They love it. They may not always want to hang with us. They may not always want us to be in charge. But in terms of what we do and our swag, they eat it up. Right. I mean, there, there's. I feel like there's always been that that sort of back and forth that that trading of culture because, like you mentioned earlier, I mean, in the in the seventies, hip hop culture was obsessed with Bruce Lee and and those kung fu movies and those sort of things. So there's always right. been that sort of incorporation, especially into that type of dancing of martial arts moves and and so sure. yeah, I mean, that martial arts cool and the struggle of the little guy right overcoming you know David overcoming Goliath right. One last question about Blade before we move into Black Panther. I know you know that Blade Trinity has been. Sort Sort of, uh, if, there's been a lot of talk. A lot, lot has been said over the years about the problems that plagued the set, and and you know people have accused you of being difficult to work with. And <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember the story. Yes, yes. And now, and now they don't even want to mention Blade Trilly. <laughs> well, how do you feel about it? Looking back on it, some 14 years later, like what, like what do you think uh, is how do you feel about it now? It was kind of interesting at the time because, uh, you know, we were offended by some of the commentary. And most people didn't understand what was really going on with the, uh, with the project and the challenges that were faced on set. Most people didn't know the uh, power, I guess you could say, that I had to make decisions in the project and how that was usurped by others who, you know, decided that they wanted to marginalize me and some of the African-American content uh, contributors. When the ancestors say, you know, just a little bit of time and then this too shall pass, to see now the, the recognition of what I was saying to them from the jump street. Because at the time, the director of the trilogy, he had never even directed a commercial. And the film that he, the first film that he directed, he was able to get produced because I contributed my time and energy to the film and without pay as a friendship, as an act of friendship to support his elevation from writer to director. And then I got stiffed. <laughs> I got woke up. You with me? Yeah. Yeah, I got woke I got awakened to the, the how the game is really played. And how the game is played at the higher level. You felt as though um, your your ideas and, and contributions were not being recognized once you got to set? Is that what you mean? Well, that was clearly the case. But even more so, the idea of bringing in a younger group of uh, protégés, vampire protégés, was my idea. Mm-hmm. And others took that. And began to um, um, leverage that for other opportunities that excluded me. So literally, I didn't find out that they were talking about doing a spinoff, which was my idea, until I was in an interview and the ladies asking me, to, so, you know, what did you think about this? And how did you come up with the idea of bringing in the younger um, talent and passing the torch and all of that? And she said, and what, what a great idea for the sequel. And I said, pause, wait, what sequel? <laughs> and then she was like, oh, well, yes, you know, there's going to be a spinoff, right? And you, you're thinking about doing a television series and all of that. And up until that point, that conversation had been private hmm. with just a few people. And she revealed to me that they were already down the road talking about it. Hmm. 
and Brother Man wasn't in the conversation. Okay. That's what began the problem <laughs> with the production. Right, right. You know, and now time has passed. People talk about it and say, man, it had a lot of problems. These were things that Brother West mentioned from day one from a position of producer, position of authority, not the position of the actor trying to be, you know, egotistical. I'm looking at the money. I'm looking at the business. And I'm saying, wait a minute, you can't have all of this vulgarity in this and then expect to sell toys, expect it to sell in these other markets. They're not going to buy it. Why are we undermining the revenue potential of the project for the sake of appealing to this particular individual? And I got a very, I got a number of very interesting answers. Long story long, <laughs> long story long, <laughs> it became what it became. Mm. And now, hey, we sit by the river long enough, we see the bodies roll by, float by, and here you see. Mm-hmm. Nobody even wants to talk about the trilogy. <laughs> it fell off the cliff, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and, and conveniently, you know, hey, blame the black guy. Mm. Well, we can move on from Blade Trinity. <laughs> Um, I do want to talk about your uh, your idea for bringing up Black Panther, because as you mentioned, that was actually before you even got into right. it. And, um, you know, what what was it about Black Panther that really like that really got you? It sounds like you were more familiar with that as a comic than you ever were with Blade. Yeah, beforehand. absolutely. Well, you know, I was very, very um, culturally in tune. And my minor in college was African Diasporic Studies. This is also what led me to studying under Dr. John Henry Clark and some of the great minds on the East Coast, uh, knowledgeable about the history of Africa and the truth of Africans' long legacy of empire and glory. So I had that as in the background. And when the idea of doing what uh, Black Panther came along, and envisioning the world of Wakanda, oh my God, not only did I want to be a part of that, but I thought it would be a fantastic way to help address some of the stereotypes about Africa and the African's glory, the African history, African people uh, of the day, of the time. And it was cool, once again, you know, I imagine the, the world of technology and the ability to do um, um, medical procedures and operations on a holographic image. These things already existed. The, 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 the great writers of, the, of Black Panther already included these things in the storyline. You know, the vibranium. All of these things were like, wow, the technologically sound, advanced, uh, it's cool. They got flying things. They got things that morph, and they're blending the modern tech with the ancient traditional customs. You know, the healing practices and the 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 the, the um, babalaos with you know the Western medical science. That was fantastic to me. Mm, yeah, and that was part of the motivation behind wanting to do uh, a Black Panther movie. Plus, again, it was cool. 
you know. I mean, I was even down with the tights and everything, the, the leotard. That was all. <laughs> it was all. It was all good. <laughs> You know, yeah, there was actually I, I I checked out you did an interview also with The Hollywood Reporter that as of this recording went up just yesterday. Um, and you mentioned there are a couple of different directors who were that were sort of being talked about at that time, um, one of which was John Singleton. And you told a funny story about talking to him. <laughs> can you can you elaborate a bit more on that and, and sort of what his vision was and how it didn't necessarily align with no, yours? because John was in that, you know, boys in the hood mode. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, what was the other one he did about the school? Higher learning. Higher learning. Yeah. So that's where he was, he was kind of oriented in that direction. Mm-hmm. And he thought, you know, the idea of taking the Black Panther out of Wakanda, out of the high-tech world, and bringing him into the civil rights movement and the civil rights mission uh, in West L.A. was a good move, was a good idea. And I was like, my man, my man, look, you cannot sell any toys. You're not going to sell any records. You need none of that. <laughs> we go down that route. Plus, you're going to freak people out. The white community might bug out, man. You come talking about the Black Panther, and we already got the Black Panthers in the suit from the, the, the nationalists and the revolutionaries from, the, from the, 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 the 70s and the 60s. Man, we, how, you know, clearly if there was an issue <laughs> with selling the concept to the foreign market before, that came along, mm-hmm. man, once you throw that kind of, you know, storyline into the mix, it's dead on arrival. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's dead on arrival. Right, right. You know? He was like, nah, 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 because it's Bob the father, you know, and the son, and they have this riff. You know? I'm like, man, this is, nah, 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 nah. You know, I love John, but maybe, you know, he might tell the story a little differently, but that's the way I remember it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like you, you had in mind, obviously, like, even predating, now we have all the toys, we have all the gadgets, there are now Black Panther, for the for this movie, there are now Black Panther action figures, you're also thinking about this as a business, and and yeah, I mean, it, I, I can imagine it'd be very hard to try and sell, uh, <laughs> a at least back then, this, like... <laughs> A Huey P. Newton standing next to, you know, T'Challa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Having a conversation, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. <laughs> About did, the goings on. What's happening, man? <laughs> <laughs> did you did you talk to any other directors or, or scriptwriters uh, at the time and what their vision was? You know, we may I may have, but I don't recall who all of those were, I do recall that I didn't have a discussion with any white directors, mm. which was interesting. Yeah, um, it was interesting. I, and I recall also that Mario Van Peebles' name was in the, uh, in the conversation as well. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, we had already completed um, New Jack City. Right, so yeah. New Jack City came before, right, so Mario was hot. Mm-hmm. At that time, and his name was dropped into the mix. What did you have any ideas for where you wanted to go? Like, did, were there any specific um, scenes, or like, did you have a vision of like how it would open um, f- if you were to be able to put your stamp on it? I, I don't recall having specific scene ideas, but I had a general vision of depicting Africa and the multicultural world of Africa, similar to what you might have found in ancient Aksum or Timbuktu or Kilwa, 
these glorious empires and the div- cultural diversity, the clothing, I mean, the, uh, and um, the African martial arts, which most people in the world are unfamiliar with and don't know that there are systemized martial arts, African martial arts systems. Mm-hmm. So all of that was, you know, a part of what the vision would include. And, of course, we had to have great music and the technology. Yeah, I was a tech head back at the time, and me and, me and, me and uh, um, uh, Sinbad used to occasionally meet at the Mac store and trip out that we were like one of the only two black guys that we would ever see in the Mac store <laughs> <laughs> back in the day. You know? This is when you had to, you know, log on with a dial-up. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> I remember that very vividly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So now that we have the new Black Panther, um, even though obviously you weren't able to get your version made, it sounds like you're very excited about it. And, you know, what what are you what do you hope will come from this? Excited is definitely not the word. Overcome, overjoyed, clutch the pearls. I am ecstatic <laughs> about it. I know what it's going to do and the impact it's going to have, not only on the minds of the community, but on the industry and the minds of those who are now the new breed and the new gatekeepers. And when they see the money, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a wrap. <laughs> it's a wrap. You know, I, it's inevitable that it opens up, you know, new opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's like dropping a, a lotus seed in the, in the, in the mud. It's going to grow. It's going to grow. Yeah, I hope and so. It opens up opportunities in front, in the middle, and behind the camera, across the game, for people of color to participate. Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of people don't know that there are other countries that are making really great action-oriented and comic book-related and fantasy-related content featuring people from their community. Those products are not often imported here in the States and those that are are not marketed so that everybody knows about it. But it ain't like there's, it's not really, it's not like that, you know, the States is the only game in town. There's some incredibly talented people on the continent and other continents that are doing fantastic work in this space. Mm -hmm. This will encourage them even further, further and maybe give power to what they're doing, maybe give a greater footing and interest mm-hmm. and, 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 and attract greater support. Yeah. I mean, it, it does make me happy to see how much, how much financial backing and advertising money they're putting into Black Panther. Uh, and I, I wonder if they would have done the same had you been able to make that. No, no, no. And we have to put in, you keep in mind, too, the digital age opens up that possibility. Right. It, 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 you know brings the world closer, and then it allows your marketing dollar to, dollars to travel further, yeah. you know. Yeah. So it, it, I can't even imagine what this version of Black Panther would have been 20 years ago when we were talking about it. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and then for that matter, if you take away the digital age and the power of digital and the Internet, and then you isolate this version of Black Panther, you might have the same problem. 
There might be some people in the States who hear about it, but for the most part, the world wouldn't. Yeah, right. So it's the right thing at the right time and the right occasion. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that, you know, that's the divine will of the Most High, and I am always, always submissive to that. Let it be. You know, I feel no sense of loss whatsoever. <laughs> None. I'm happy because I know what's going to happen after this. I know where it's going. <laughs> Remember, I was 20, 20 years ahead of the game then. I'm already 20 years ahead of the game now. <laughs> it ain't got worse. It got better. <laughs> I know where this is going. Unfortunately, we're all, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in the tech world heavily, and I get to sit with the futurist and see what some, some of the new technology that's coming out that will be used not only for exhibition, of content in the theater space, but also stuff that can be integrated into the film project that breaks the fourth wall. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing where you take that and and, mm-hmm. that. and a couple last questions. I mean, since you have been in this world for so long, the climate, like, how has the climate, do you think, in Hollywood changed, uh, you know, as a black person, as uh as a man in Hollywood, especially we have, you know, all this Me Too stuff happening. And you yourself have been sort of subject of rumors in the past, uh, similar to Me Too, at least with in the case of Halle Berry. Um, there have been... What? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, the rumors about you possibly, allegedly... Um, uh, abusing her when you dated her. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in this Me Too moment now and we're, we're, we're having these conversations. Well, I'm just curious, like, what do you think of where we are now and, and how? what do you feel about those rumors that you've sort of had to deal with in the past? Well, I don't even, I mean, how, who feels about rumors? I mean, you know, there's all kind of rumors, rumors come and go, you know. And, you know, that used to be a song. Look at all these rumors. Find me every day. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Man, no, you, you can't sweat the rumors. That's, that's how people spend their time. You know what I'm saying? That's how people get up in the morning. They need that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current climate, I could say, hey, everything changes, you know, and it's not what you do at the moment. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. So you can have all of this fervor now, but what will it mean next year, the year after that? What will it mean in five years? That's the determining factor of how effective the movement is. And if people really got it, if people are really going to change. But, you know, change is inevitable. There's always going to be something new. With every generation that's uneducated to their past, they'll presume that the thing that they're doing is the first time it's ever been done or the first time it's happened. You know, these issues have been raised in the industry going back to the early 1900s. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. We, you know, we, it's a beautiful time and it's a beautiful uh, opportunity to voice these concerns and these issues by both women and the men, um, which is lesser talked about. But we shall see, you know, and knowledge of the past and knowledge of the history will help determine where you're going in the future and give you better clarity of where you're at now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. My last question for you is something I ask all of my guests, and this is, can you recall the last time you saw a movie or TV show uh, in which you felt represented on screen? And it can't be something that you were personally involved in. 
So you related to that character, you related to that situation, you related to the story. You felt as though you were seen in that film. Can I say Kung Fu Panda? Sure. You weren't in Kung Fu Panda, right? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Okay, then yes, you can say Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> That's the first. <laughs> yeah, I can say Kung Fu Panda. I can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it? Was it the just the kung fu itself, or like it's, it's the journey of you know, the of the of all of them, mm. all of the the, the 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 characters, you know, you know, coming in, not believing in yourself, learning to get along, learning to train, and the suffering that you go through <laughs> in the training process, whether that's the martial arts or the performing arts, mm-hmm. you know, and then emerging overcoming your fears mm. yeah that's that's an answer <laughs> we've i don't think we've ever had a no no one's ever said kung fu panda or even, 20, even, 20 years ahead of the game sis. jaime camille said coca so we've we've had a couple of animated films so you're not the only one <laughs> but yeah yeah <laughs> well wesley it was a pleasure talking to you and it's thank you so much and oh really quickly before you go what is there any i know you've been asked this many many times but do we have any hope of seeing Blade at all in these new incarnations of the as the Marvel? Long, there's always that conversation. Marvel and I have had numerous conversations about it, mm. and I know that they are exploring what those possibilities are. We internally, we've developed what we call a Blade on steroids script, and we also have another project that it fits smack dab in this space. Awesome. You know, (laughs) if Marvel comes around, great. But if not, we're ready. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Wesley. Pleasure. Pleasure. And that's a wrap. Reminder again, that spoiler special episode is going to drop on Monday. So look for that in your feeds. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Marilyn Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And if you saw Black Panther and you love it, or even if you didn't love it, come let us know on our Facebook page, Slate Represent. 